Got to jump in here. There's been a latest news flash uh, from the Prime Minister there where about 100 people on or around White Island when the explosion happened. Uh, Some of those people are still unaccounted for. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, we're the adventure capital of the world, making the most of our natural assets to give visitors a thrill. But Mother Nature is temperamental. It's hot water, and it's hot water that's trapped as liquid, and then it expands to steam suddenly. So there's a huge amount of energy that is in water, and that's the hard thing for us to actually see what is going on prior to it happening. It's nearly a year since Fakari White Island erupted, with 47 people stranded on the island, killing 22. And the Prime Minister was pretty unequivocal after the event that there would be close scrutiny of the sector. Regardless of the the shape of it um, or the title in which it will be given, um, there will be questions that have to be answered. So regardless of what form that takes, um, information obviously needs to be put into the public domain to answer the questions that are being asked. So what's the state of adventure tourism in New Zealand now? Has anything actually changed? Does anything really need to change? And how safe can you realistically make an activity when its main selling point is, you know, danger? The starting point for this is probably actually establishing what we are talking about, what adventure tourism actually is. Here's stuff.co.nz's Christchurch Business Bureau Chief, Amanda Crop. It covers things like mountaineering, some of the canyoning trips, uh, caving, even things involving uh, vehicles maybe, um, some of those uh, quad side-by-side vehicles going over quite mountainous terrain, all that sort of thing. Wow, man. On a dime, so fast, so aggressive. It was closing in so quick, and I think I was instantly shocked at how close he was positioning the boat to the rocks. Okay, are you ready to fly? Here we go. Three, two, one. Did you say that? Yes, go! How much more awesome does that get? Ah, this is the most amazing thing ever, guys! Now, this is an important question because adventure activities are governed by regulations. So obviously there has to be some specificity as to what is and isn't included. So, an adventure activity is something you pay for. It includes things like abseiling, canyoning, glacier walking, high rope activities, mountaineering, riverboarding, outdoor rock climbing and open water scuba diving. The emphasis is very much on the naturally hazardous kind of activity. So that includes things like avalanche, landslides, ocean surges, storms that hit very quickly, as well as the obvious geothermal and volcanic activity. I can't remember the exact date, but there was an incident where a couple of tourists were washed into the ocean near the Gannett colony um, at Cape Kidnappers, where there was a cliff collapse and that caused a huge surge in the um, in the ocean and uh, they were uh, injured in that. Documents obtained by RNZ show the Department of Conservation was warned a decade ago 
that slips and rock falls at Cape Kidnappers were a significant and unacceptable risk to visitors. So it's those sort of catastrophic events which can affect a lot of people. Is adventure tourism an especially uh, big or, or growing industry in New Zealand at the moment? Well, New Zealand's always had a reputation for adventure tourism. I mean, Queenstown likes to sell itself as the adventure tourism capital. There are more than 300 uh, activities or operators, list, actual operators listed on the Adventure Activities Register. And that hasn't changed much in the last year. I think there's a few more than there were at the time that Fakari occurred. But th- there's a huge range. And people like to have a go at things that maybe they have on their bucket list. So when they come to New Zealand, they might do um, bungee jumping or canyoning or caving or skydiving, all those sorts of things that they perhaps wouldn't normally do at home. And I think New Zealanders are the same when they go overseas. But it comes down to how those risks are managed and also how well those risks are communicated. Because for me, the big issue with Fakari, and you would have heard victims talk about this, particularly the people who were coming off that cruise ship. Cruise ship goes into Tauranga, and this is one of the shore excursions that was on offer. I think that um, most of the people, most of the 47 people on the island at the time of the eruption were off that vessel. And they, I don't think, really had any idea as to what they were walking into. I mean, they are told it's an active volcano, but I don't think they really knew what that meant. And the automatic assumption is this is being offered through an excursion company. It would have been checked, so it should be safe. The thing that I find a little concerning is that when you read the GNS website, it said that at the level of unrest that was there at the time, with it being at level two, it meant the volcano may be entering a period when eruptions was more likely. And it describes what happens when those eruptions can occur without warning. So it describes rocks being thrown like cannonballs onto walking tracks that could kill or severely injure someone that they hit. And there's the possibility of a collapse of the unstable walls of the main crater and the risk of exposure to acidic volcanic gases. Now, when you read that, you think, hmm, actually, do I really want to do this trip? So I think uh, one of the interesting things about this review is what it's going to mean in terms of communicating that risk to people. The key word, I mean, the word that's doing a lot of lifting in that sentence um, is the word likely. It's a grey word and it's it's entirely relative. And I suppose in a sense it places a great deal of responsibility on the prospective consumer to know what they are getting themselves into. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about volcanoes and geothermal activity. They are really unpredictable. Yes, you can monitor them, but sometimes they just occur and we have been lucky in the past that some of these eruptions on Fakari have occurred at night and so people were not there but there was absolutely no doubt that activity was greater under level two. I was talking to someone the other day who had been fishing on a vessel quite close to Fakari about a week before the eruption and he told me that they ended up closing the hatches because the smell of gas and the ash 
was making them feel sick. So uh, they had been fishing near the island before and they were very aware that it seemed to be more active. So I think things like that are a concern. And, and the other issue too is who makes the call when it comes to deciding whether to do these trips? Because, you know, there is a commercial imperative in all this. You know, people are running businesses. One of my colleagues got a response from GNS, I think it was uh, either last year or earlier this year, and it says quite clearly that GNS does not make recommendations about whether people can visit Pakari White Island. Mm. It provides the information about the current situation on the island at the time, and it indicates when those circumstances have changed. It doesn't provide risk assessments for the tour operators. So you've got the whole question of how that information is being interpreted. So who is responsible for monitoring and regulating this sector at present? So there's the Adventure Activity Register, and that lays out the sorts of operations that uh, should be on that register. And they have to do a safety management audit and that audit looks at all the safety issues they should be covering. Now, those audits are carried out by certified auditors, and so they have to pay for that. So the, the costs sort of can range anywhere from five dollars to $10,000. That certification lasts for three years, but in, in the intervening years, there can be surveillance visits by the auditors. Sometimes that's just a paper check, but if there are any concerns, they may visit in person. So, to summarise, say you own a business which makes money taking people on walking glacier tours. Before you open up, you have to register yourself as an adventure tourism operator and agree to a safety audit. The audit costs five to ten grand, and if you pass, it basically licences you to operate for the next three years. But Amanda Crop reckons there are potential loopholes in that system. There are certainly some issues around the way that that has been administered. And it has been suggested to me that maybe one of the answers is to have WorkSafe either take over that work. So, Because you've got a contractual relationship between the operator and the auditor. So the operator has to pay the auditor. Mm. And it is conceivable that if an operator doesn't like the auditor they've got because they think they're too strict, they can go off and find another one and hope that maybe they won't be quite so strict. I'm not saying that necessarily happens, but there is that possibility. So the suggestion is that maybe WorkSafe should resource itself up and they should be the ones doing the auditing. Or WorkSafe could contract existing auditors to do that work and the government would pay for it. Now, it's been suggested to me that cost could be anywhere between 3 and $4 million a year, but then you could still get the uh, operators to contribute. One of the issues, too, is this whole question of the, the mystery shopper. So these audits are scheduled, and I spoke to an auditor who told me that, of course, when you turn up, they know you're coming, so they have on their most experienced guide, and they have their most compliant clients. So you see them at their best. And he described a situation where he went along and did an audit and the next day he sent a mystery shopper on the trip and someone who had performed perfectly the day before was taking shortcuts 
that were unacceptable when the mystery shopper did the trip. So, you know, that's one of the options is whether there needs, maybe there needs to be um, a bit more of that kind of activity. But it all comes at a cost. And the problem is that a lot of these adventure tourism companies are very small businesses. Quite often they're family operations and they don't have a massive amount of money to spend on that sort of thing. So there's always going to be that tension between cost and safety. The tourism industry is warning that tightening rules around managing risks could hit the sector hard in the wake of the Fakari White Island eruption. At least two tourism operators, White Island Tours and Volcanic Air Safaris, are among the 13 parties charged by WorkSafe. The eruption has also sparked a review by MB into regulations governing adventure activities that operate near natural hazards. Let's talk a bit about this review. Um, what was this prompted by? Was was this? Does this essentially come down to what happened at Fakari? Yeah, I think uh, there was due to be a review of the adventure safety, uh, adventure activity regulations uh, after they'd been there for a while, and then of course Fakari occurred, and that prompted them to have this look. But the scope of the review does seem to be limited to naturally hazardous environments, whether it go wider than that. Uh, I mean, you could argue that bungee jumping, the emphasis is all around the equipment, the training, the way that the jump is handled. Uh, it's not like, um, you know, climbing a mountain when there's an avalanche risk or there may be an avalanche risk. So the scope of this review is that it's going to focus on these unpredictable environments like landslide and avalanche. The other things that it's going to look at is is the safety audit scheme, the role of experts in the monitoring and reporting. So they're supposed to have these audits done and their certification lasts for three years, but over that three-year period there can be checks in between. And so it's how those checks are done. Because, you know, White Island Tours had won a safety award yeah, true story. White Island Tours was named safest place to work among small businesses at the aptly named Safest Place to Work Awards in 2018. And they had passed the audit. So that's where the issue um, arises as to you know, whether the system is working properly. It's honestly such a tricky area here because, you know, part of the appeal of these activities is literally the danger. Even the regulations governing adventure tourism point this out. Adventure activity means, quote, an activity that is designed to deliberately expose the participant to a serious risk to his or her health and safety that must be managed by the provider of the activity. If you want to, you can make these activities pretty much foolproof, but then it kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? You can't go white water rafting in a swimming pool. You can't go cross-country skiing in the Antarctic centre. In a sense, what these regulations try to achieve is impossible. The promise of order when you're paying for chaos, manufacturing a situation when you're inches from death, without any possibility of actually dying. Yeah, operators are really concerned about that because they say you can't build a wall around everything. That's the whole point. But it's just a matter of managing it. Uh, One of the issues that has come up too is the whole question around near misses and the reporting of them. 
Now, DOC is currently having a look at whether or not it should make the reporting of their misses by people operating concessions on Crown land compulsory. At the moment, they're not. But people involved in this area have said to me, well, look, you know, near misses are really important because they point to where maybe you need to make changes. And if you're not acting on those, that's when things can go badly wrong. And I was talking to an auditor this morning who said to me, well, you know, I talk to people and say, well, let's have a look at your near miss register. And they say, oh, we, we, we haven't got one. We haven't had an incident in five years. And, and he simply didn't believe that. He said, you've had them. You just haven't written them down. And so that's one area that maybe could be looked at. It's that you can't put a fence around things. You can't take away every risk. But it's a matter of making sure that people are uh, well-informed and that they know what they're getting into. The great thing about White Island is that as soon as you get onto the boat, you step straight onto the active volcano. There's no hiking to do, no crazy strenuous exercise. You are right on the heart of the volcano. And one of the issues that certainly was raised about Fakari White Island was about the sorts of people who were going there, uh, whether maybe some of the people were... Um, either too young or too old, you know, whether they were physically capable, because let's face it, you know, if things go wrong, um, you might have to move very quickly. Um, I had a look at the GNS website and it talks about what to do in an explosive eruption on Fakari. And it says that people should immediately run towards the eastern end of the crater floor. Uh, and that uh, if there are swirling, the swirling steam or ash clouds or there's poor visibility, they should take shelter behind large rocks and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you've got young children um, who are going to be very frightened, you know, those are things you have to think about. WorkSafe conducted a thorough investigation into the Fakari eruption. Is it possible to summarise in brief the, the findings of that investigation? No, because uh, they won't release it because they have laid charges against 10 organisations and three individuals. So the contents of that report will remain under wraps until the case goes to court. So we really don't know exactly what they looked at. But there were 28 people involved in that inquiry, so it has been very wide-ranging. And the extent of the prosecutions is quite extensive. You know, you've got tour operators, you've got the people who own the island, you've got GMS Science and the National Emergency Management Organisation. So you've got two government agencies that are in the gun in terms of charges as well. There is, and you've written about this, also an interesting subplot uh, developing here about WorkSafe. Obviously, WorkSafe are tasked with making sure workplaces are safe. Ficardi demonstrably was not so. And one might think logically that WorkSafe itself had a case to answer here, but they are not among those charged. No, well, it's a bit of, an, it's a, bit of a, a weird situation where you have WorkSafe had actually visited uh, White Island tours uh, a couple of weeks before the eruption and they wouldn't talk to us about what that visit was about but you know that is their job but on the other hand they are the ones who are calling out other people involved in this process so it's who's watching the watchdogs 
And that is one of the issues where people have said, well, maybe we should have someone more independent to have a look at what happened here to see whether WorkSafe acted in the way that they should have. I mean, there's always been um, concerns about the resourcing uh, and whether they have enough staff to um, keep on top of things because, you know, adventure activities is definitely not the only thing they're responsible for. You know, they have a pretty wide remit and it's whether they have enough staff to cover that. So there was a review in 2016 Mm -hmm. of adventure activities and that certainly highlighted a few shortcomings, to put it mildly. So um, that identified almost 3,500 non-conformities with the WorkSafe um, safety standards for adventure tourism operations. And about 20% of those were major non-conformities. So they were things like um, issues with emergency preparedness plans, situations where the auditors found that the adventure tourism staff were not fully competent and there were about 50 cases where there were major issues with companies failing to take all practical steps to keep the staff and and tourists safe Mm -hmm. from um, significant hazards. So, I mean, people in the industry tell me that things have improved since then. But it's, you know, sometimes I think maybe um, they could be tougher. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Adrian Holley engineered today's episode, which was produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Amanda Kropp. Matewa.